Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to the Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the final big art market event of the year, Art Basel in Miami Beach, the all-women programme at the National Museum of Contemporary Art in Athens, and Pezzolino's panels illustrating David and Goliath. The Art Newspaper's Associate Digital Editor, Alexander Morrison, talks to our acting art market editor, Tim Schneider, in Miami about the last major art fair of the year as tensions rise ahead of the pivotal 2024 US election. We capture the mood at Art Basel in Miami Beach. In Athens, the National Museum of Contemporary Art, or EMST, is next week opening a months-long programme that will end up with the entire museum filled with women artists. I talked to EMST's director, Katharina Gregos, about the programme called What If Women Ruled the World? And this episode's work of the week is actually two objects, the 15th century Florentine artist Francesco Pezzolino's panels telling the story of David and Goliath, made for a luxurious chest for the Medici family. The panels belong to the National Gallery in London and have just been restored for a new exhibition there, Pezzolino, a Renaissance master revealed. I talked to Jill Dunkerton, who did the restoration, about these extraordinary paintings. Our festive offers at theartnewspaper.com continue with subscriptions starting at just £50 or $62 for one year. Visit theartnewspaper.com slash subscription dash offers. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With. The latest episode features a conversation with a Swiss artist, Urs Fischer. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the biggest art fair in the Americas, Art Basel in Miami Beach, open to VIPs on Wednesday with an astounding 277 galleries showing in an overhauled fair layout in the Miami Beach Convention Centre. As we've heard on this podcast, the mood at other major fairs like Freeze and Paris Plus and in the New York auctions has been mixed with some successes amid a significant level of concern about the resilience of the market. But what's the mood in Miami, often the most upbeat and extravagant of all the major fairs, especially amid political turmoil in Florida and the US? Our associate digital editor, Alexander Morrison, spoke to Tim Schneider, our acting art market editor, about what happened on the first VIP day. Tim, we're here in Miami. It's another blockbuster year for Art Basel. We've got nearly 300 galleries, more than 4,000 artists. What's the mood? Um, What's changed? I think the mood is cautious more than anything else. What you end up hearing from almost anyone that you talk to who's being even relatively candid with you are phrases like, it's a more discerning market, it's a tighter market, and these are all obviously different ways of saying things are not as boisterous as they have been in years past. But, by and large, people are still kind of making it work. Mm. And that's good enough, I think, for right now, after what has been a pretty rocky year, all things considered, in the art market. And one way of looking at the idea of making it work, there have been some notable sales. I mean, we had the 20 million Philip Gaston yesterday in the first preview day. We also had a a notable Rauschenberg. How can we read those results? I mean, could you talk me through some of them and, and, and what they actually say? about the mood you're describing. Talking about how these major prices impact the overall mood of things is always a little tricky. For instance, just to kind of 
take listeners into the editorial process a little bit. Yesterday, I was putting together a sales report with my colleague, Carly Porterfield, and we had to file in the middle of the afternoon. And up to that point, the biggest ticket items that had sold were about, I think, five or six paintings that had sold for a million dollars or more, which is something, but it's not knock your socks off great. And then... Shortly after we filed, we got news that Hauser and Worth had sold a $20 million Philip Guston painting. And all of a sudden, it becomes very hard to say that if someone has sold a painting for $20 million at an art fair, that it's not kind of impressive. But the difference between what the overall ceiling for the fair was before that particular result came in, it looks very different than where it was. It all goes back into this idea of things are good enough. And for some people, they're great in instances, but I think it's also tricky to say, well, because Hauser and Worth sold a painting for $20 million, that means that everything must also be great further on down the ladder. It's a meaningful data point, but it's still just one data point. Yeah, and also, I mean, how confused are data points by the fact that much of the work is pre-sold? I've seen a few collectors in other write-ups complaining about this idea that they're coming to a fair and and a lot of the work on the walls has already gone. I mean, how much has that shifted, or is is that something that has become more and more commonplace in in these environments? I think it's safe to say that it's always more commonplace when the overall financial, economic, business climate is more challenged. Not surprisingly, the harder your year has been, the more willing I think you're going to be as a dealer to say, if I have a good sense that I can sell this two days before the fair's open, then great, I'm just going to do it. At the same time, I also think that we on the other side of it are maybe a little bit too tied up in this notion of, well, they didn't actually sell it once the fair opened. My perspective, and maybe I'm just being cynical about this, is sort of who cares? Like, if you sell a $20 million painting after 11 a.m. on Wednesday, the first VIP day of Art Basel, versus if you had sold it at 9 a.m. that same day, does it really matter? I don't know that it does, because at the end of the day, the work is still finding a buyer, you're still putting that on your bottom line, people are still finding out about it and talking about it. So I think that it's maybe a little bit of an artificial distinction, at least when you're talking about specific instances like that. So it becomes like a windows play for the market rather than something that's necessarily shaping the market in and of itself, a fair like this. I mean, it comes on to the idea that the New York auctions that we had in November were quite shaky, and this feels like a completely different environment in terms of the the positivity that's coming through in the works and also some of the the conversations. How useful is it to stand up the New York auctions against sales at places like Art Basel Miami Beach? Is there a conversation in terms of the broader US economy that we can read from that? So there's always a relationship because ultimately, whether you're talking about auctions or whether you're talking about art fairs, you're still talking about the business of art sales. And by and large, the most important factors for how things are going in either of those sectors are the kinds of big picture things that you're talking about. What's the state of the economy? How concerned are people about frankly, terrible things happening in the news. And in the U.S. in particular, I've heard from people that I know and trust that there is more of a direct relationship between how the financial markets are doing that particular week and the week leading up to it than pretty much anywhere else in the world. So 
all of those things are going to be a factor, whether you're talking about artwork that's being sold by an auctioneer or whether you're talking about artwork that is being sold at a fair stand by a private dealer. Another thing that we should probably talk about, it's interesting that we're having a conversation the day after the fourth Republican primary debate. And Florida in general is an interesting state in terms of local politics. It's historically a purple state, increasingly moving to the right. How has that impacted the fair in terms of the work being shown in the program? What have you seen? So far, I don't think that there is a tremendous amount of direct reference to what's happening in terms of the work being shown. There are instances here and there, and granted I will caveat all of this by saying, as you noted, there are almost 300 galleries in this fair in particular, and I have at this point only had a considered look at a fraction of those. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I just walked by six booths that had works directly about Donald Trump, I'm sorry I didn't make it to that corner of the fair yet. That being said, this is not a year in my mind, both from what I've seen so far and from talking to other people and seeing some of the other fairs this week. This isn't a year where I think a lot of dealers or a lot of artists came out and said, we need to very directly talk about what's happening in especially the American political field with the works that we're showing or the works that we are making. I think that there are kind of two different ways that the art world can treat these kinds of questions, especially in a commercial context. One is to do what is not happening, which is to say, yes, we are going to engage with this. The way that we are going to, if not solve this problem, at least engage with it, is through the selling of artworks. And then there's another way, which is to say, everyone is so sick of this that what we need to do is give people almost literally anything else to think about. And in that direction, you have works that, frankly, are not necessarily, maybe at most, engaging in a broader thematic sense with some of the, the larger tensions that show up in politics. But again, you're not seeing, so far anyway, a lot of direct Donald Trump is the devil type stuff. Right, and it seems to be not so much on the walls of the booths, but in things like you say, the, the curatorial concept at Untitled is much more inclusive, and that was reflected in the fact that I think it was something like 57% of the work sold yesterday were by women artists, and then you also have outside of the fair things like the public art project by a collective looking at the drag, like conversations around drag artists in Miami. So this conversation seemed to be happening, but not, as you say, those conversations aren't coming out of the, the booths. They're a broader framework. Another thing that is standing out from this fair and has been written about a lot is the kind of influx of wealth. We have Jeff Bezos on his mega yacht down the road in the bay, has to park near oil tankers because the ship is so large. We also have an influx of collectors from Latin American countries, many of them now left-leaning. The countries, anecdotally, have you had any word on how the kind of collector base in Miami might be shifting or changing? What I would say is that the most direct way that what you just described is impacting the fair so far is that it is creating about, I would say, five to ten moments every day where people who are paying attention are seeing relatively fit, bald white men and asking, is that Jeff Bezos? Oh, no, it's not. Oh, damn. Um, it's, it's kind of looming over the proceedings, but... The reality is that I, whether or not that upper, upper, uppermost tier of collectors is 
based in Miami most of the time or whether they're just visiting, I don't think it really makes that much of a difference. Like, before Ken Griffin officially moved to Florida, was he saying, like, well, I could go to Art Basel, Miami Beach this week, but, I don't know, kind of far to take a flight from Chicago or New York or wherever. It's like, he was probably showing up anyway. And the same with all these other people. So I think that, in my mind, the bigger impact is not necessarily that that level of collector or more of that level of collector is moving down here. It's more that the policies, especially in terms of Florida being a sales tax-free state, for instance, and just making a lot of policy decisions that are favorable towards wealthy people, like that's the stuff that matters. It's less that the people are responding by deciding to reside here and more that the things that are enticing them are there to try to juice commerce. And that's really driving, I think, the business as opposed to like, who actually has a house here. And do you think that likely could signal something about if those tax breaks and those advantages stay the same, the art scene could benefit? What I would say is never underestimate how much wealthy people hate taxes and what it can drive them to do. Like I remember having these conversations during the worst of the pandemic where some of these policy changes started to come into effect and there was the speculation of, oh, well, are people really going to move to Florida from New York because they can save X amount of dollars per year? And in some cases, it turns out the answer is, yeah, <laughs> it is working. It is something that is drawing business, that is drawing people. And I think that we can count on that being the case for the long run. Now, how much of that we see is an open question, but it has always been a draw to some extent. I think it is safe to say that unless human nature has some kind of species-shifting reversal between now and tomorrow, like it will continue to be a thing. And so we can probably have the same conversation again next year. Final point, I think, which is what really draws people to Miami. I think one thing to say, first of all, is parties are a massive part of Miami life, certainly during Miami Art Week. I think you were at an interesting event last night. Could you just give me a bit of a flavor of what it's been like this week, party-wise? <laughs> so let's start with last night. Again, we're recording this on Thursday, so the second VIP preview day of Art Basel Miami Beach. The previous night, I was at what I believe I described to my wife over text when she was asking what I was up to as a design-focused Japanese women's wrestling match in a skate park underneath a highway overpass in downtown Miami, <laughs> which I think that we all just kind of need to take a breath for a moment and absorb that before I continue. Yeah, and this was tied to the programming to some loose extent, wasn't it? Yes. I think it's actually the league that is called Sukeban, <laughs> the Japanese Women's Wrestling League. But it was, I think, safe to say that this was the event that I've heard the most people talking about. And it really did draw an interesting cross-section of people from both the art world and from kind of related cultural worlds. So you had... In some cases, name dealers who are exhibiting at Art Basel show up and like lurk behind the DJ booth at the Japanese Women's Wrestling League. And then you would also see like 19-year-old fashion kids kind of trolling around with wild hair and whatever else. Jesus, I sound like I'm a thousand years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's an example of the kind of energy you get here, right? You get things that are unexpected 
that allowed, that are fun. I mean, do you think that that is setting our Basel Miami Beach apart from its rivals? I mean, we're having this conversation at a time when Freeze is very much like trying to grow in size and in presence with the acquisitions by uh, Endeavour. Do you think that Miami's future lies in just setting itself out as the fun one, the dynamic fair? That's always been Miami's identity. As difficult as these fair weeks are, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Miami because Art Basel, as we know, when we're talking about Basel Basel, as we say, it's an extremely elegant, very high-class, old-world fair. And then you take the Art Basel brand and you put it in Miami, and the sheer Miami-ness of Miami just kind of makes it so that it's always going to be a little rough around the edges, a little glam, a little just like art world on summer vacation almost to a certain extent or like schools out almost for the year kind of vibe to it. So it gives people a chance to to let loose, to kind of indulge and like that's been an appeal from the very beginning. I think it's always going to be the appeal of this fair and that's not to say that whether we're talking about Freeze or other art fairs that there aren't very real allures that they have in other cities other times of the year but Miami is always going to be Miami for better and for worse and we're seeing that again this year well we better go back and embrace the Miami-ness of Miami and thank you very much Tim always a pleasure Art Basel in Miami Beach is at the Miami Beach Convention Centre until Sunday, the 10th of December. Coming up, the All Women Artists Programme at Emst in Athens and Pezzolino's Masterpieces at the National Gallery. That's after this week's News Bulletin. Jesse Darling has won the 2023 Turner Prize. He was announced as the winner of the £25,000 award, considered the most significant prize for art in the UK, at a ceremony held at the Winter Garden in Eastbourne, the town on the UK's south coast, whose contemporary art gallery, Towner Eastbourne, is the venue for this year's Turner Prize exhibition. In his work in that show, Darling uses motifs of the British state to conjure a dystopian environment in which governmental attempts at control have crumbled and led to a state of chaos. In his speech, as he accepted the award, He criticised long-term conservative arts policy and argued the case for art in schools and for culture's role in the lives of people from diverse socio-economic backgrounds. He concluded his speech by waving a Palestinian flag, a comment on the coverage of the ongoing Israel-Hamas war. I wanted to say something on the BBC, he explained, because otherwise it won't be said. A new archaeological study has revealed that ancient Egyptian society forced captive baboons to spend their life in enclosures without sunlight before mummifying their bodies as a ritualistic offering to the gods. An analysis of 2,500-year-old baboon skeletons found in Egypt's so-called Valley of the Monkeys has revealed that the animals suffered from malnutrition and a lack of sunlight, leaving them with bone deformations, though they appear not to have been treated violently. Wim van Neer of the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Sciences in Belgium, who was the lead author of a research paper published in the journal PLOS One said that he and his colleagues were shocked by the high proportion of deformations and the severity of the pathologies, which seemed to be in contradiction with the elaborate treatment the animals received after death as mummies. And finally, numerous works in the US have been repatriated to their place of origin. On Monday, the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg announced the return of four antiquities collectively valued at more than $1 million to Nepal. Three of the objects are connected to ongoing investigations 
investigations into Nepalese trafficking networks, including that of the allegedly prolific looter Subash Kapoor. They include masks that have been acquired by the Rubin Museum of Art in New York and the Dallas Museum of Art. On Tuesday, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts announced that it had deaccessioned and returned 44 works of ancient art, following an investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the US Department of Homeland Security. In other US museum news, the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum announced this week it has laid off 10 employees in response to a challenging economic moment in the art world, the latest in a series of cutbacks in US museums. To hear more on the economic problems in US museums, listen to our episode from the 24th of November. And to read more on all these stories, visit theartnewspaper.com or our app for iOS and Android. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Lose yourself in art from antiquity to the 21st century in the second part of Classic Week at Christie's in London, where literary and scientific works will be presented against the backdrop of British and European paintings, drawings and watercolours. Highlights include a striking portrait of a Bashi Bazouk chieftain of the Ottoman army by Jean-Léon Jérôme and Laura Knight's My Lady of the Rocks, set on the Cornish coast. Witness literature, science, art, music and philosophy brought to life with manuscripts by Dickens, Einstein, Monet, Mozart, Freud and more in the Alphabet of Genius, one of the most important libraries of autograph letters and manuscripts to come to the market in decades. Browse an assortment of medieval manuscripts, scientific works and contemporary literature, including a richly illustrated book of hours, a 14th century scientific instrument and a rare proof copy of A Clockwork Orange. Visit 8 King Street in the heart of London's Mayfair from the 9th to the 13th of December to enjoy art and literature spanning antiquity to the 21st century. Entry is free and open to the public. Visit christies.com to find out more. Welcome back. Now, the National Museum of Contemporary Art in Athens, known as EMPST, will next week unveil the first stage of a new programme called What If Women Ruled the World that will eventually lead to the entire museum being occupied by the work of women artists. I spoke to the museum's director, Katerina Gregos, to find out more. Katerina, I'd like to take you back before we talk about the exciting new programme to 2002 and to Fusion Cuisine, the show that you curated then, which was about feminism and actually feminisms, which is crucial. I saw you do a presentation on this and it was interesting to me that you said that some women artists refused to take part because they were concerned about being ghettoized. I imagine that the new programme is very different to that and that women are embracing it in a different way. But do you feel a difference between what you're doing now and what you did then? I mean, there's a huge difference in perception and I would say not only a difference but a sea change because when I did that exhibition back in 2002 when I was director of the Destler Foundation in Athens, the reason I did it was pretty much the same reason that I'm doing what I'm doing now at the museum and that is addressing the fact that a lot of women artists are still marginalised from institutions. In Greece at the time, no one was talking about feminism or women's issues but it wasn't only in Greece it was also all around the world at the time no one was talking about feminism it was considered a sort of a done deal I do remember very clearly that there were people who criticised the show and who were like well why is she doing an all women show it's old fashioned and uh, it's sort of a bit outside of its time and there were indeed quite a lot of artists who refused to be in the show because they wanted to have men to show their work with 
I think today, first of all, in, in this whole series of exhibitions that we're doing, and it's more than 12, and not a single artist has refused. And I don't think that this would be an issue nowadays. So in that sense, within 20 years, I think a lot has changed in the perception of these issues. And again, just before we go on to the specifics of the programme, can you say how it fits in with this general mission statement that I know you issued after COVID about the direction of the museum going forward? Because it's quite crucial that you feel that there's a kind of new impetus behind the programming. Yeah, well, it's actually not after COVID that we implemented a new mission statement and a new collection policy. It was actually in the summer of 2021 when I actually became artistic director and general director of the museum. And I wanted to review the collection policy because, of course, obviously there is no one history. Obviously, fields of interest and particularly questions that are considered urgent change over time. And I wanted this to be reflected in in the collection policy. And certainly one of the things that I was very concerned about was given the fact that Emst is a museum on the so-called periphery of Europe, I don't like this word because there's something derogatory about it, but let's say at the edges of Europe. And there's a general tendency in smaller countries to sort of imitate what sort of bigger important museums are doing and sort of looking always towards the mainstream or to sort of Western centres. And it was absolutely clear to me that I certainly didn't want to sort of replicate this mirror museum phenomenon, which is happening quite a lot now in many developing countries that are sort of in a museum construction fever. One of the ways to do that was obviously to make sure that the collection policy and the collection exhibitions that we have on view are actually different and have something that distinguishes them from, let's say, what you would see in mainstream art centres all over the world. So basically, I took a compass and I just drew one circle around Greece. And in reality, we inhabit one of the richest, most exciting and indeed contested parts of the world because we are in southeastern Europe, we're in the Mediterranean, we're very close to Turkey, uh, very close to the Middle East, very close to North Africa and of course we share a shared Ottoman history with a lot of these countries and obviously there are entanglements with the former countries of the Eastern Bloc and the Balkans. I mean, truly quite an exciting territory in terms of narrative possibilities and also one that has been quite marginalised, I think, in contemporary art historical discourse and also historical discourse within Greece itself. So we decided to focus the collection on this region and on the region that is formerly known as the Levant. And this is more than 50 countries. And not only that, but it's not only more than 50 countries, but it's also a part of the world which is the crossroads of many cultures, religions, languages, ideas and practices. And so I thought this is something that hasn't been done by any museum in the region and that this would be a perfect way to position ourselves in terms of our collection. And so when you come to organise a programme like What If Women Rule the World, can you make it intersectional in the sense that address the feminisms that you're talking about and address the, the idea of women artists, but also make it inclusive to that Levant-focused programming that you're talking about? 
Yes, well, let me make a distinction. I mean, this is as far as concerns our collection policy. Our temporary exhibitions policy is part of our general mission statement, which has a slightly different focus, although the two might overlap. Mm -hmm. So our temporary exhibition program is completely international. You know, we are a public museum. We are a 100% publicly funded museum, which is extraordinary in this day and age, which means that we don't rely on private investors or private funding or dodgy sponsors. And this, of course, gives us a very, very important public mandate, which is the key of our, our whole policy, if you will, in the museum. And so our whole programming is actually very much focused around social and political issues and issues that are important for the debate that is happening in various domains today inside the commons. So from democracy and human rights, identity issues, obviously, environment. I mean, all of the issues that we can consider critical today, privacy, uh, the influence of uh, social media and the tech giants, all of these things are things that pervade the programme. And within the collection, obviously, there's a strong cultural parameter that relates to this part of the world which we inhabit. But our temporary exhibitions programme is, of course, much more international. Now, to answer your question, in the collection presentation, you'll find that there is indeed a lot of coherence and a lot of artists that come from this specific part of the world that we're talking about. So just to mention a few names, so Etel Adnan, who was originally, her family came from Izmir and was half Greek, half Syrian, but was born in, in Lebanon, for example, or Diana Al-Hadid, from, who's from Syria, Gada Amer, who's from Egypt, Hira Buyuktasian, who is from Turkey, Despina Meymaroglu, who is actually a Greek artist, but from Alexandria, Egypt, before the Greeks were ousted during the height of Nasser's nationalism and many others. You know, at the same time, there are also other artists, but there is a core of artists that reflects, obviously, this uh, policy statement and indeed a lot of artists from the Mediterranean region, which is also what concerns us quite a lot. Of course. Calling it what if women rule the world, it seems to me that question mark's important because it, it suggests it's a laboratory, it's a thought experiment as well as an exhibition programme. Tell me about that. I'm very glad you ask that because a lot of people have found that very provocative and I, I don't think it's either radical or provocative. I mean, these are two words I don't like using that much. It is indeed a question mark and at the same time, it's also a hypothesis. I'm not saying women should rule the world. I'm not saying women should not rule the world. But it is a, an oft-asked questions, you know, would the world be a better place if women were in charge? I can't answer that question. I can certainly say that I think some things would be better. I think there would be more considered conversation and more compromise and perhaps a, a slightly more level-headed way of approaching things, considering that most of the great warmongering in history, as well as now, is being conducted by stubborn men. It is a question worth answering, I think. Precisely at this moment in time, when we're seeing a regression in so many fields, in the world now, you know, need not go very far looking at what's happening now in Israel with Netanyahu or, you know, in, in Ukraine with Putin. One thing is for certain, I think that perhaps, you know, the degree of violence that we witness with men at the helm perhaps would be reduced. I don't believe it would be eradicated altogether or that there wouldn't be equalities because women can be quite awful among themselves as well. <laughs> And that's why the collection exhibition is called Women, um, comma, Together, because it is an implicit statement about the necessity for female solidarity. You know, also one of the reasons that the patriarchy is another word I don't like as well, because it sort of groups all men into one category, is that the old boys club tended to stick together. 
Um, and I can't say the same for women. So, I mean, to put a little sort of, you know, slightly humorous spin on this. Right, absolutely. But let's talk then about women together. And also I wanted to explore the notion of to what extent are you defining womanhood? I know that we talked about that earlier exhibition. It was dealing very clearly with feminisms, not a sort of monolithic idea of feminism. To what extent are you looking at the idea of a woman in the broadest sense? I'm not really interested in dealing with the idea of womanhood because it is something that has been talked about so much And I don't think this is the angle that the exhibition is taking. I mean, obviously, there's a very strong feminist angle underlying the entire programme. And there's a bold statement in that respect. But as far as the collection exhibition is concerned, it is not concerned on the female condition per se. I think it would be a huge cliche to say that, yes, women are indeed different and we can talk about different aspects of womanhood, but I don't think that's what is interesting at the moment. What is interesting is looking at how women, and let's say if we can call it a female sensibility, are dealing with all these important issues that are out there and that we all have to deal with collectively as a society. So I would say that there's more of an underlying preoccupation with questions of equity or oppression and difference in the exhibition than, you know, with the idea of the female condition per se. Right. And obviously, because of the nature of the breadth of the collection, you're looking at all sorts of formal strategies as well. And do you group the works in particular strands or are you in a way celebrating diversity within the hang? I mean, there is diversity, obviously, geographically and culturally in the show. But the way that I'm looking at the collection exhibition, as indeed I look at the whole museum, and perhaps this is something I didn't say earlier, but we conceive of every cycle of exhibitions in a curated manner, another overused word, but let's say in a manner which is coherent. That is that, you know, all of the exhibitions that we have in the museum somehow have a dialogue between them. We tend to avoid sort of generalist presentations, let's put it this way, generalist or indexical or token presentations. So in that sense, if you were here in Athens and you would see the exhibition, you would see that, you know, this is an exhibition that does not include all kinds of art practice, all kinds of aesthetics and all kinds of processes. I mean, there are a lot of common points of reference and there is a kind of dialogue between the works. They're not grouped in categories because we didn't have to group them in categories because I think it's obvious when you see them that there are many eclectic affinities, not least actually of which in the use of materials. There's an emphasis on the handcrafted and on the lo-fi. And there is a certain sense of existential and sort of contemporary concern with the state of the world today in the sense that I know this sounds very general, but let's say that altogether it reflects the current state of fragility and uncertainty. We are a long, long way from 1989 and the so-called end of history. And, you know, I hate to say it, I'm, I'm a huge optimist myself, but, you know, things are not looking good. They're not looking good in terms of the environment. They're not looking good in terms of privacy issues and democracy issues. So obviously there's this sense of malaise, I think, that is quite pervasive throughout the exhibition. And there's also a very dominant sense of an awareness of fragility, of the possibility of entropy, of breakdown, of decay. 
which I think is a reflection of the time. So there's no like bling bling art. You know, we are, as I said, we're a far cry from the 1980s. Indeed. Alongside the Women Together Rehang, you're showing a group of exhibitions which it seems to me very carefully present not only different sensibilities but also different generations and so on and tap in closely to both the local and international situations. Yes, indeed. I mean, this is something that underlines all of our exhibitions and all of our practice. And if I may say, this is the first of the three parts of the exhibitions. There's another 10 exhibitions coming with artists from all over the world. This is perhaps the most Hellenocentric of all of them. (laughs) It is important, of course, we are in Greece. We do need to address what is happening within our environment and within our environs. Two of the artists, Krisa Romanos and Lida Papakostandino, are actually quite historical artists. Lida Papakostadino was one of the first Greek women artists to be educated in a fine art school in the UK in the 1960s. She was one of the first feminist Greek artists. She was doing things that were equally as relevant and as fresh as Martha Rossler, Carol H. Neyman, Hannah Wilke, all these first-generation feminist artists. But because she came back to Greece, as happens with many countries of the, as I said, the so-called periphery, she really hasn't received her dues. She's born in 1945, and she was one of the first people who did body art in Greece, who engaged with questions of female equality, gender identity, collaborative practices... And this is her first major retrospective. Now, it says a lot that she's 79 years old and no institution in Greece has ever done anything to address her importance. Likewise, Krisa Romanos, who in her day, Krisa was born in 1931, died in 2006. And she happened to be the wife of a very, very, very famous Greek artist in his time, Nikos Kisanlis, who died in 2004. This was part of a generation of diasporic artists who left Greece in the 1960s to go to Paris. Of course, Paris was the place to be at the time for anyone coming from Greece. And Nikos was a part of the critic Pierre Estani's circle and a part of this kind of nouveau realist movement. And so was Chrysa Romanos. Uh, And though while she was active in her own right as an artist, again, she never received the recognition that her husband did. He became professor at the Athens, dean actually of the Athens School of Fine Arts. And um, although she's had several exhibitions and in her time, she also had a lot of exhibitions in Europe. Over the years, she was sort of marginalized and forgotten. And yet she was making political photo collages before Martha Rossler did. Right. So it was very, very important to redress this balance. And then, of course, we have Danaya Nesiadu, who is actually a a Belgian artist who was born in Germany to Greek parents. And this is also another aspect of our programming is whereby we look into the artists of the Greek diaspora, because the Greek diaspora is one of the three archetypal diasporas in the world. You know, there are the Greeks, the Jews and the Armenians. Now, there are more Greeks outside Greece than there are in Greece itself. So there are 15 million Greeks outside Greece and 10 or 11 million Greeks in Greece. And there are many, many, many artists who had to leave Greece or who grew up in first generation or second generation immigrant families who had careers abroad, became, you know, lesser or more known. 
and are a big part of our cultural legacy. And this is something that we consciously do and we've begun to do now also with the two exhibitions of the Yanis Xenakis that are on right now, who, of course, spent uh, 30 years in France. And we'll also be doing the first major, major retrospective of the South African second-generation artist, Penis Yopis, hugely important uh, figure in Africa on the African continent for artists of many different generations, does not speak Greek, but of course has Greek heritage, also one of the you know important feminist artists of the 1980s and one of the really important anti-apartheid activists also of the 1970s, 80s and 90s. And, you know, following on that, there'll be a, a series of exhibitions in the second and the third part with obviously international artists, um, Bushra Khalili from um, Morocco, Yael Bartana from uh, Israel are having solo presentations, for example. You know, this is a big cycle of exhibitions which will actually be completed within the next year. And lastly, I just wanted to ask you about Alexis Blake, of course, who it seems to me that project is sort of emblematic of the programme as a whole, that you have a woman artist who is presenting a work which directly confronts the kind of history of art and the representation of women within it. Yes, indeed. It, it is very, very important because it is about questions of representation. And I saw a performance by Alexis, I think it must be seven or eight uh, years ago, at the Rijksmuseum, where she performed this extraordinary piece, Allegory of the Painted Woman. And at the time she was starting out, and I thought when I went to see this performance, I thought it was just so extraordinary. And as, as you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of performance going on, but there really are very few performances that are unique and are, are executed to this level of sophistication, perfection, both visually, conceptually. And so I invited Alexis to participate in the Riga Biennial in 2018 when I was curating it. And since then, I've followed her work. And I think she truly is one of the most extraordinary performance artists of the younger generation. She can combine so many different elements together. I mean, from perfect execution, incredibly in-depth research, extremely in tune with issues of uh, representation and identity, meticulous production, choreography, music, resulting in incredibly moving and memorable images. I do think she is going to be one of the most important performance artists of her generation. And indeed, this performance sort of encapsulates the whole programme about how we look at women and how women are represented, not only within the confines of a museum, but also in the wider public domain. Katerina, thank you so much. Thank you very much. What If Women Rule the World begins at Emst on the 14th of December. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The National Gallery in London this week unveiled a new exhibition, Pesolino, a Renaissance Master Revealed, the first ever show dedicated to the full career of the painter Francesco Pesolino. This Florentine master, who was born around 1422 and died in 1457, is, according to the National Gallery, one of the greatest Renaissance painters that few people have heard of, a situation it intends to change with this new show, which features loans from the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown in the US and the Musée du Louvre, among others. But 
at the centre of the show are two of the National's own works, his undisputed masterpieces, two cassone or chest panels depicting the story of David from around 1453 to 1455, which have been restored. The conservator behind that restoration is Jill Dunkerton, and I spoke to her about the David panels. Jill, before we start talking about Pesolino particularly, I just want to get a sense of what it's like to be in a conservation studio working on this exceptional masterpiece and how much of a kind of, as well as a blessing, it must be incredibly daunting taking on such an extraordinary piece. I've been in this business for a very long time and I've worked at the National Gallery for my entire career. So working with great works of art has been my life, really. But every new project is, of course, incredibly daunting. They're an enormous responsibility and you always have to work with doubt in your mind. We must never, ever think, oh, I know how to do this. I can do this. Yeah, so tell me about that doubt, because, of course, one of the issues that you have to deal with when you're conserving a masterpiece like this is earlier interventions, as in not the original artist's work, but previous restorer's work. And, and of course, the nature of conservation has changed so much over the year. Theories of how you go about this have changed so much. Is that where the doubt is, in a sense? What are absolutely the original marks and what are subsequent interventions? All paintings as old as the Pesolino panels have had a long history of conservation. And the first stage is always working out what the previous interventions were. The original material is, in a painting like this, relatively easy to identify And, of course, I've had a lot of experience of working on pictures of this type. Hmm. But working out what's happened to the painting in the past is where both one's own knowledge and intuition, but also a very, very careful scientific examination before and using imaging tools is absolutely essential. We also know a bit about the painting's history or its later history, and we think it was last restored in probably about 1895 when it was on the market in Florence which is when each panel got chopped in half, presumably in the hope of selling them as four paintings. But fortunately, somebody said, oh, no, that's not a great idea. And they got put (laughs) back together again pretty quickly, I think. Well, that's great. Thank God. So tell us about what you've been doing with these panels in terms of to what extent was the previous restoration in need of really serious repair, if you like? Well, the previous restoration, partly because of its age, but also the way it was done, had deteriorated very badly. It wasn't so much the discoloration of the varnish, you could have lived with that, but all the old restorations had altered completely in colour, and so were very disfiguring. And they were also heavy and clumsy. Lots of the figures had completely repainted faces. And I must admit, it was very hard to determine whether there was original paint underneath. And yes, they're damaged, But I think every single face that I was terrified of always had something to help me rebuild them again. Because these paintings, because they're Cassoni panels, have been knocked about quite a bit. They're low down and they get lots of knocks and damages. Tell me about some of those damages. So first of all, explain Cassoni panels. What were they intended for? But also some of the nature of the damage is, is absolutely to do with their use as an everyday object, isn't it? Cassoni panels, these were set into the fronts of large gilded chests, in this case an extremely lavish one, but they were chests for keeping textiles in, usually valuable embroideries, textiles, clothes, and so they were opened and shut because they were used 
And the damage that we identified on our two panels, which absolutely confirms they must have been Cassoni, is that um, generally speaking, these Cassoni were locked and we've actually found little wooden plugs which filled the original keyholes when they were stripped out of the Cassoni, but also that they tended to leave the keys hanging in the locks, bunches of keys. And in the general sort of day-to-day passage of life, these swung and knocked against the surface of the panel and formed all these little dents. You see these on so many of these Cassoni that it's uh, obviously a bad habit that everybody (laughs) seems to have had. But that created a lot of work for me because I had to deal with these dents, which I've left visible as dents because they're a fascinating part of the history of the object. But they were disfiguring Pezzolino's wonderful design. And so I've retouched over those little dents. And there were hundreds of them. Right, indeed. So tell us about Pezzolino then, and particularly where he was at the time when he made these extraordinary works, because he reached a level of maturity, is that right, by this stage? Yes, these are relatively late works in Pezzolino's tragically short career. So he was probably in his early 30s when he started these. And by then, he had risen to work for the most important patrons. He'd been doing manuscript illuminations for the Pope, But there is a lot of evidence on these two Cusani panels that these were made for the Medici, for Piero di Cosmo de' Medici, and that they are top quality luxury objects. Right. And do we know the occasion? Because it's curious, isn't it? Because there are all sorts of marriages going on. But is it right that this doesn't have a date or wouldn't seem to correspond with any of those marriages? It doesn't fit for Piero's marriage to Lucrezia Tornabuoni. That's too early and that would not fit with Pesolino's career trajectory. It just doesn't look right. But actually, when you look closely at the Cassoni and at the far right end of the right-hand panel, where the procession is arriving to greet the ladies. In the past, it had been thought, because of all the damage, you really couldn't see it very clearly, that this was greeting the bride. But it's absolutely clear that this isn't what's happening. The ladies have come out of the city, and they are just receiving the procession. And they're dressed in the Medici colours of dark green, pink and white. And the senior lady in the pink, who is probably alluding to Lucrezia, is raising her hand in a gesture that in the Renaissance was always recognised as a greeting. And she's just receiving the procession. Therefore, we think that probably the occasion of the making of the Cassoni was when the Medici moved into their very grand new palazzo, the one on Via Larga, and they needed bigger and grander furnishing, and that this might have been made as a sort of glorious housewarming present for the principal camera of Piero and Lucrezia's bedchamber. How extraordinary. What an amazing housewarming present. Let's talk about the iconography. So it's two panels which relate to the story of David and Goliath. It's an extraordinary, rich and detailed sequence of images. But tell us broadly which parts of the story they illustrate. Well, the first panel, the panel that went on the left, which is always the panel traditionally associated with the bridegroom, the male subject, is the story of David and Goliath. Now, in the Bible, of course, it takes place with just the encounter between them. But here, it's a very busy series of episodes stitched together in an absolutely ingenious way. He was a wonderful designer. And so we start at the far left end with David in the background as a shepherd. 
Pasolino was a wonderful animal painter and is full of charming animal details. And then he volunteers to come and help the Israelites against Goliath and the Philistines. And King Saul, the king of the Israelites, accepts his help and offers to clothe him in armour to protect him. And David rejects it. He says, I don't need the armour. God will look after me. So he rejects the armour. That is shown in the first group with horses. But then we go back again and David goes and picks up the stones that he knows will be useful for killing (laughs) the giant. And then we move across. There's a very crowded battle scene as the Israelites are sort of fighting the invading army. And then we see beautifully set against other figures, but also set, interestingly, against Medici symbols, David with his sling in a wonderful pose. And then on the other side of the little stream, there is Goliath standing, a giant figure in gorgeous gold and silver armour, and he flings his stone. In fact, he's already hit Goliath. There's blood on his forehead, and he's standing there looking stunned. And then he crashes down and is straddling the stream. And more battle continues further over on the right. The second panel is just a single episode, and that is the triumphant procession to the ladies of Florence, obviously, because the association between David and Florence is a very strong one, and David and the Medici is a very strong one. And this is actually a wonderful representation of a Florentine procession. And so we have the processions arriving in the far, far left corner, little tiny figures galloping along, all painted with minute detail. And then we have prancing horses, knights. It's tremendously romantic as well as everything else. And then we have David standing proudly on his carriage, holding the decapitated head of Goliath. And the body of Goliath is slumped rather inelegantly on the carriage. You can recognise him by his armour. And then we move across to the next one, which has got captured prisoners, I think. Although they are wearing armour, they look very dejected and they're all crouched up on the carriage. And then we have Saul leading the procession into Florence in his gorgeous armour with his golden helmet with the dragon on top, which we've also seen in the first painting. And then finally, preceded by the trumpeters and the little boys on the grey horses, we reach the party of the women with elegant young men. They're not portraits, but they are just representing the young men of Florence. And then we finally meet the women, the three older women in their gorgeous costumes, the Medici women, perhaps alluding, then two more behind, and then two little girls who perhaps alluding to actually Piero's daughters, the sisters of Lorenzo and Magnifico. Oh, how wonderful. One of the things you've alluded to there is just the sheer volume of figures, the sheer number of them, all attended to with extraordinary precision and detail. And you've mentioned this idea that he's an extraordinary designer. It seems to me an incredible feat of his greatness, if you like, that he is able to command that many figures and still emerge with an elegant design. He was the most wonderful draftsman, and I think this for him was clearly a very, very important commission, but I think he enjoyed himself enormously. Absolutely every single figure is drawn out on the panel with an underdrawing. Now, he had to do that because of the complicated nature of the design, but also because he was using all this gold and silver, and you have to lay the gold 
and silver leaf first before you start to paint. So you can't just sort of work out things in a more improvised way. It has to be planned. Right. And so he lays first the gold, then the silver, and then he paints. And is it right that he put the gold and silver on? Because some painters would employ specialists to put the metals on, but it was him that did it, right? Well, I think he must have done. Of course, he could have subcontracted that. But the design is so complicated and the shapes that he's gilding are so small and fiddly that I think only somebody who knew exactly what was going to be where, and he had to know which bit was gold, which bit was silver and so on, I think he must have done it himself. And it was part of the training of an artist. And when I restored it, I did the same. So, you know, it's still possible. All of it begs the question, when one looks at it, one thinks it must have taken a very long time to make. It must have taken a very long time to restore too. (laughs) It did. Um, The cleaning was quite slow and difficult, often working with a microscope, especially for actually the most exciting and rewarding part, which was what happened when all the very old varnishes could be dissolved out of the tooling, the punch work and the indentations in the punch work, which were all filled with very dark brown varnish, which actually reversed out Pesolino's intentions because he used the tooling to show the fall of light across the gold in the same way that he used light in the painted parts of the picture. And yet they were all dark. And then as the varnish came out of those depressions, slowly, 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 everything started to sparkle again. It was absolutely thrilling. And it must be amazing too, once you've done the work in the studio and then finally, there it is, in the gallery presented to the public. It's always a very difficult time. We get very attached to our pictures and we live with them in the studio for a long time. And so, yes, when your pictures go out into the world, you worry about them. You hope people are going to like them. I knew people were going to love this. They are the most joyous pictures. And it seems that people do respond both to his incredible craftsmanship. They're just so entertaining. You can go on and on looking at them and you find more and more. And for the exhibition, we have supplied magnifying glasses to encourage people to just stop and look really closely and slowly and get a little bit of the experience that I had when I was working on them. Well, Jill, thank you so much for telling us about them. Thank you. It's been wonderful to talk about them because they've been such a pleasure to work on. Pesolino, a Renaissance master revealed, is at the National Gallery in London until the 10th of March 2024. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mahowska, Alexander Morrison, and David Clack, and David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Alexander and Tim, Katerina and Jill. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week for our review of the year, but bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.